Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I am excited to welcome back a return guest who, and I threatened to do this episode when Alma was here last time because she was writing this book last time we talked and hinted at this. And I said, ooh, that sounds awesome. We're going to have to talk about that book. And now I've read it, The Fervor. Um, So uh, Alma is most well known for writing historical horror novels such as The Hunger about the Donner Party, The Deep about Titanic, and she took a kind of detour from that to write about a world she knows really well with Red Widow and has returned to historical horror with The Fervor, uh, the book that you hinted at about Japanese internment camps. And so that's the book we're going to be talking about today. But, you know, last time we talked, Alma, you were just releasing Red Widow. Can you tell folks just a little teensy bit about Red Widow and how that book has gone, because I know that there's TV interest as well out there that might not have been out there to talk about last time we talked. Yeah, it's been, Red Widow has really been quite a whirlwind. It got um, really great reviews. It was made a New York Times editor's choice. It uh, was nominated for Best Novel by the International Thriller Writers Association. So Best Thriller didn't win, Um, but who yeah who can expect an honor to be nominated it's an honor to be nominated and it has been in development with fox for a tv series um but as you know i'm sure you know a lot of crazy things happen along the way so while we've been working really hard on it i'm not exactly sure where things are going and the second book in the series is coming out next spring red london which already has been getting some film interest so yeah we're it's very exciting very exciting so it could be a matter of which one goes first right yes yeah Yeah. because they're looking at the second book for a movie actually so yeah well that's cool and we knew that there was going to be more coming with red widow because (laughs) uh the way it ended which we don't want to get too much into uh, but uh, definitely recommend red widow as um a really cool realistic um kind of feminine John Le Carre um style novel and I say that uh uh that's a great thing to me (laughs) yeah that is probably the nicest thing anybody could say to me (laughs) right and and people should also know one of the one of the reasons why like I was super interested in it is that you come from that world you worked in that world so you you know uh a, a little bit about it and as tempted as I am to ask you a bunch of real world politics questions about things that are going on, we're here to talk about history and um, the fervor, which uh, now I am assuming you were always going to come back. To, you were going to kind of bounce back and forth between these spy thrillers and the historical horror novels. How did you get into writing? Because last time we were talking about Red Widow. So so. So writing historical horror novels is kind of a, a, a 
a, a very specific niche that you had. How did you get into writing those kinds of novels? It is a specific niche. It's uh, like a sub sub genre, I suppose. Um, kind of sideways, uh, which is probably how a lot of writers end up doing certain projects. You know, I'd written a trilogy. Those were the first books I ever wrote, which were more in the fantasy realm, but it had a supernatural element to it. And um, but I kind of came in as that genre was sort of dying on the vine. And so how I got into writing historical horror is a little different. Actually, my agent was approached by um, a company that is what's known as a book packager. And they asked if I would be interested in working with them. And but I said uh, the principles in this are these two. Uh, best-selling young adult authors. And so as a writer, I was just kind of curious to get to know another author's process. So I said I would do it, but only not as work for hire, but only if we did it as a partnership. So The Fervor is our third book together. Um, I should also add that one of the reasons I wanted to get involved with them is they had a very high success rate at selling the film rights to their properties, a very high one. And at that point, I hadn't sold any film rights. Right. And they were very good because we had Ridley Scott picked up the option for The Hunger before we even had a book deal. Well, see, and that's just the thing people realize in this day and age, if you want to be a writer that doesn't have to clock in anywhere else, one of the best ways to do that is to sell film rights to something. <laughs> you, you know, no matter how many books you sell, like if you if you really, you know, want to make sure you're going to be staying home every day, <laughs> uh, that that's the way to do it. And so... I think that's really smart. That's the importance of, of doing it that way, right? It's really it's really changed. We can talk a little bit afterwards about uh, the, a story I've coming out with Amazon Original Stories. I think the lesson for a lot of writers these days is you really have to diversify. You know, it's not just doing a novel every year or every two years anymore. It's, you know, readers' attention spans are so different. And we can talk about that later if you want. Well, you know, um, that's the thing that... Uh, uh, Brian Keane talks about all the time about how like don't have all your books with one publisher don't have all your your eggs in one basket which you know is you know really good advice because um you know you you want to get out there and, and, and get around you know so absolutely yeah so that's good so um but you know and we did talk a little bit about in the last interview about the hunger and the deep and where you got to those. So I definitely recommend people go back and listen to that one too. However, with the fervor, like this, this is a very personal story in a lot of ways for, for how you, um, you came to this. Um, was it those personal stories or the general history of it? Where did this project start with you? Well, um, to be really nitty gritty, when we were casting around trying to think what the third book would be about, the uh, kind publishers were kind of pushing writers of historicals to look at the 20th century, to not really look for some reason books that were set in previous eras just weren't selling. So I said, if we're going to do the 20th century, especially World War II was starting to really sort of heat up. I said, I'd love to do the Japanese internment. Uh, I'm half Japanese. My husband's half Japanese. And while my family was from Japan, my husband's family had been interned. And so it was through them that I really learned a lot about the Japanese internment. Not necessarily that the, the folks who had actually been incarcerated told a lot of stories because characteristically they don't. 
and, and we can yeah. get into that a little bit. But we learned a lot. My husband and I wanted to learn more. So we watched a lot of documentaries and we read a lot of books and and we did, you know, try to tease a little bit out of um, out of his relatives. And through that, we learned that it's not the story that they give you in history class. Right. And that's not to blame teachers or schools. It's That's just how history classes. They kind of give you sound bites. Right. Like an easily rememberable thing and then they move on to the next subject but the internment like a lot of historical events is very nuanced and very complex and so I really welcome the opportunity to sort of peel back that onion for people who maybe weren't as familiar with with what happened and it's quite an important part of American history right and um I I should um by the time this airs um my my uh next novel will be announced which by the way is a historical horror novel set in world war ii um right so so we're going to be on the same but as we're recording this it has not been announced yet the title has not been announced yet but it's supposed to be in publisher's marketplace this week and uh so um i you know this was you know i i love the era too i i you know mine was set in europe so it's very different, but um, but I love the era and I love researching and writing about the era. So like the fun part for me is picking your brain on on the research process for that. And I hope we won't get too in the weeds for people about this, but let's start first with, um, you know, where did the story come from? So obviously you wanted to write about internment. Um, and so did you start by did you have an idea before you started doing research or did the ideas come as you were doing research? Well, all the part that has to do with the internment probably just came out of the knowledge that I already had, you know, like what the life, what life in the camps were like and all that sort of thing, just based on everything we had learned over the years. Um, for me, a lot of times the way in is, you know, so let me pick some of the other ones, for example, because this book is a little different in that while it's about a general historical thing that happened, it wasn't about a specific historical thing, except for the catalyst, which, which was the explosion of the fire balloon on, on um, Gerhardt Mountain in Bly, Oregon, which the book opens with, and it's an absolutely true historical event. But after that, it kind of becomes a bit more generalized. Whereas with my previous books, for instance, we knew that the hunger was going to be about the Donner Party. And we knew that the deep was going to be about the sinking of the Titanic and its sister ship, the Britannic. So that gave me very specific things that I could go in, do a lot of research about all the events, um, you know, timelines, everything. And well, as you're doing that, I'm sorry. And, and the Donner Party, though, you had like that, a lot of that's mythological at this point because it's so long ago. So you probably had <laughs> a little bit more area to fudge or. Or am I am I reading it wrong? Is there more about the Donner Party than I realize as somebody who has not written a book about them? There's so the Donner Party is really interesting, and it's great to compare and contrast that to the Titanic. So we'll do that. The yeah. Donner Party. There's a fair number of really good reference books that have been written about it. There's some good academic historical research, but what there's a lot of is anecdotal like, you know, coming out of amateur genealogist records or uh, diaries and newspapers, not necessarily of the 
principles that were involved in it, but of around that time. And so, you know, it, you have to be comfortable, yeah, with fudging things a little bit, but there's a fair amount of like solid rock that you can pin your story to. And the Titanic, by contrast, is a metric crap ton <laughs> of research that's been done and a legion of people who are diehard Titanic fans who are going to kill you if you get anything wrong. So there are two very different circumstances. Interesting. And as I write these yeah. books, I learn a little bit about what's what do readers expect, but also what's best for the story. And so by the time I got to the fervor, it's very far removed from an actual story like the Titanic, the sinking line of the Titanic or something, but I think ended up making for a better story. So I think, you know, as a writer, you have to give yourself flexibility and really get a feel for what's going to serve the story you want to tell the best. Yeah, and, and and I'm not doing this as a cheeky reason to promote my own book, but because uh, I'm thinking about the research process, like for me specifically, my entire novel takes place on the very last day of, of the war in Europe. Like, <gasps> the, you know, it, it, and so there's a set timeline. There's all, there's all kinds of, you know, like the Russians are coming this way and, and these, and, you know, the U.S. controls, you know, the Allies control this part of, of France and Germany and, and there's very specific things. So what I was really interested in when I was reading The Fervor is like, um, because I'm trusting you while I'm sitting here reading this, you know, because I don't know uh, internment um, as well. And so what I was wondering was how much did you, because I wanted mine to have like, you know, besides the supernatural elements, like I wanted this to be like, this could have happened. And right. we just don't know about this one element. Was that the path that you took with the fervor? Is that like this could have happened and I'm fictionalizing these parts or did you just, or did you play with it? No, well, I think with these types of stories that is the reader expectation, right? Like yeah. it, unless they're really not paying attention because <laughs> we say over and over again, like I never talk about these books as though they're documentaries, right? or nonfiction, they're always a reimagining of the story of the, mm -hmm. you know, I say upfront, there's a horror or supernatural element. So hopefully readers understand that they're not getting the facts and nothing but the facts, right? So I think readers come to it with this, with wanting to see that interplay between truth and imagination, you know, fact and fiction. I get a lot of emails from readers who say that they you know, they're just so energized about the event that it it prompts them to go back and do a lot of reading so they can figure out what what did I make up and that sort of thing. So I think of it as sort of part of the game. It's, it sounds like that's kind of how you you did it too. I'm dying yeah. to find out more about this and I'll, because the short story that I have is coming up actually has to do with Germany at the end of World War II. Interesting. Well, uh, just for my own uh, to not come off as a, sh as a shameless, I, I will I will wait till after our interview okay. to tell you more about it. Also, because ideally the title should be out there <laughs> and released, but we're holding <laughs> on to that. So just in case something gets delayed or whatever, I want to be careful on that. Okay. Uh, but at, for the fervor, so so one of the things too about it is that like you said that there is a history of it and there are a couple books that have been that have come out about internment and 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 that and, and in fact one that i have on my shelf that i haven't read yet um but so there's histories about this so there are resources but you're right like um 
Japanese culture is not one to to like sit around and talk about like all the awful things that happen to them, right? Yeah. That, that's just not a Japanese thing to do. Yeah. So getting the information about this time in this era now, and you had to specifically um, in writing this, you're going to have to know about what Japanese life was like before they were interned, <laughs> the process of which they got interned, and then what it was like in internment just for that one aspect of the story. And we're not even getting into Fran or uh, Pastor Mitchell. And those are elements we'll get to in a little bit. But just tell me about like learning about that Japanese, the Japanese experience in this novel. Sure. Well, that's where having a family, you know, that were involved growing up, looking at the pictures, hearing the stories, all that for Mako, which is one of the main characters, it's an ensemble cast, so there's four narrators, but she's really sort of the main character. She's very much based on my mom, although she's temperamentally, she changes over the course of the book, like a good protagonist should. Um, and she starts off a lot like my mom, who was a very proper Japanese lady, right? So very demure, you know, would never speak back, is always thinking of others. But circumstances forced her to end up becoming more independent, which my mom didn't. So this was really eye-opening for me, trying to picture a woman who started out as my mom, ending up having to really fend for herself and her daughter by the end of the book. So a lot of that I drew on. She had some very horrible experiences. Of course, she came to America after the war, and as opposed to being there during the war, during, which I can yeah. only imagine how much more horrible that was, but the way she was treated. So I drew on my mom for that. And then for my in-laws and their whole family, their whole family was in turn. They had been living in Berkeley, California. They had a florist business, which they lost. They lost everything, all their property, trucks, everything to the war. And so hearing those stories and of course, hearing the stories of other families and friends and that sort of thing, seeing the pictures of them when they were young, it's amazing. Um, you know, I, I had carried these, 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 this knowledge in my head and you just, and I actually had been around a lot of other Japanese Americans um, who had similar experiences. And it didn't dawn on me that other Americans didn't realize, didn't have the same images in their head, that these are folks who, wore the same 50s clothes that, you know, their parents had worn, had curly hair, you know, like Betty Grable and liked American music. The questions I got asked by some people, like, why weren't they in Japanese clothes? Why didn't they all have Japanese names? You know, they were named Susie and Bobby <laughs> and right, David right. too, right? Um, for those reasons, I feel it's very important for, well, to write like okay, this. Okay, so now you've also the idea that they came from Berkeley too is very interesting to me because in my other podcast life where I researched Philip K. Dick, like, you know, he was growing up there in Berkeley at that time. And so I've actually done a bunch of research about Berkeley in that era. And like Berkeley was already seen as a progressive place. Right. But yeah. not progressive enough to, to, to obviously to save everyone. Right. And, right. and um, you know, it, it's funny because that um, experience is, you know, then you've got this idea of you, you have Japanese people that are living all over the West Coast and all over the country that are being pulled into these places and then having to suddenly blend like the cultures that they've kind of been building wherever. Sorry, I think we got, we got froze up there for a minute. So I lost the, the last pit, bit of oh. what you said. 
Oh, sorry about that. Yeah. So, you know, you have these Japanese people from all over the United States that are kind of building their own cultures wherever they're at. And then they're all put together. And then, you know, do they rely on their Japanese culture or do they, you know, their Japan, their United Japanese culture, you know, it, it, it just must have been such a horrible thing to try and rebuild your lives in that situation. Right. right. And there was such a mix, too. You know, there were three generations in the camp. So there was the the uh, the older people who had come from Japan who may not have been U.S. citizens, who still relied on their children quite a lot for English and that sort of thing. But the second generation, the Nisei, which was my um father-in-law's family. Most of them were Nisei. His parents actually did go to the camps with them who were uh, Issei first generation. But, you know, they were Americans in every way, shape, or form. Most of them spoke a fair amount of Japanese and knew some Japanese customs because they were continued in the house. But by and large, I think a lot of them actually shared that commonality. You know, the other thing is, uh, you know, it was primarily a West Coast experience. It was because the government set up the exclusion zone on the West Coast that included Washington, Oregon, um, uh, Colorado, for the most part. There might have been little bits of other states but what happened was they said no Japanese heritage people could remain in the exclusion zone. And so they pushed them all out. And um, I'm not sure to what degree folks from the Midwest or the East Coast, but, you know, Japanese uh, immigration was was heavy on the West Coast and very, very light. For obvious reasons, when, yeah. Yeah, when the camps were disbanded, that was responsible for um, a big push of migration to the East Coast of Japanese. Otherwise, they never would have come here. Mm. Right. Well, and it's interesting. I don't I wonder how many, like when this was starting to happen, if anyone, you know, thought to move east to get away from it. I'm sure some did. Um, or Good question. Good. I mean, it happened so fast. The, it uh, happened fast. Yeah. 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 I could give a whole history lesson on the executive order and everything, which is what I was doing in the pr um, presentation for the book, because mm -hmm. I was trying to show uh, in the way that a political analyst would, how we know that what was really responsible for the executive order. It wasn't that the Japanese actually were a threat, which was the perception, but uh -huh. it was because of generations of systemic racism against Asians on the West Coast that had been perpetrated in a, to a great extent by white nationalist groups. Right, well, and you know, it's interesting too, because, uh, well, we don't have to get heavy, by the way. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, this is a heavy topic, and and, and I, I think it deserves to be talked about. And one of the things that's interesting about it is, you know, the most famous person that was was interned as a child is George Takei, and he did he's done amazing things to bring light to it. But I honestly wonder sometimes if this one famous actor had not had this experience, how little we would know about it. And you think about, for example, like the re-education schools for Native Americans in Canada, that's that's almost never talked about. That's like a thing that people almost don't hear about, which I think is a very similar Canadian experience to what the Japanese had here. So I'm wondering, like, I mean, obviously, this is this book's a little different from the last two historical ones. I'm sure you felt a little bit of a responsibility to 
to shining a light on this because like even though people know about it and it's a history that they know little bits and pieces of there's probably a lot of aspects of it that when you set out to do this you're like i want this i want i want people to come away knowing this this and that or those kinds of things were there things that were kind of targets for you like that i want to shine a light on this yeah definitely but i'll have to say one of the things i've learned writing these books is that you know, it's that old adage, if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. And I saw that in The Hunger, and I saw that in The Titanic. And I really, you know, so I kind of went into writing the fervor, seeing what was going on in America at the time. And that is when I was just starting to work on the book was 2019. So it was actually pre-COVID, even though there's a disease in the novel, it wasn't, it wasn't driven by COVID. What the fervor really um, is about to me is that rising aggression and uh, in America, right? And um, rising racism and demonization of foreigners in America. And just that hostility, just how, how uh, you know, it, it was like a disease. People were catching it and, and you know, getting really bad. Now I should, I should, you know, um, put this in context by saying I spent a good deal of my time in the intelligence community working on what we call humanitarian issues, but really it's combat that has other societal aspects to it. So I worked a lot of um, genocides and atrocities in the 1990s, right? And as a yeah, real fun stuff, right? Really fun stuff. Yeah, the people that I worked with, we all ended up getting PTSD for a while, but um. Because, you know, we worked through Bosnia, Rwanda, Somalia, Sierra Leone, you know, like everyone in the 90s, you know, we were working 20 hour shifts on them. And so you see this pattern over and over again of what happens when a civil war is coming to a country. And we were seeing those patterns in the United States. I mean, I was getting super depressed seeing this in the United States. So that's partly what I, why I wanted to write the book. I wanted to hold up what happened then. And it is really reflective of what, if, if you look at it objectively, of what's happening in the United States now. And, and an, another thing that drove it was this wave of anti-Asian hate that started after COVID when a political party really politicized uh, the pandemic by, you know, calling it China virus. Right, China virus. And it's, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is just not true. Um, Anyway, so it was a, it was an attempt to sort of, and I don't know that this is a good idea. I mean, my sales figures probably reflect that it's not. Also, I get a lot of uh, comments that are clearly white nationalists, you know, right. kind of trying to see one star reviews and, um, you know, complaining about how, you know, I'm writing this book about the Japanese, but, you know, they were responsible for World War II and all this stuff. <sighs> right, right. Not, not separating the fact that it's Japanese Americans you're writing about. Not exactly. Yeah. Um, right. Well, uh, my, uh, friend John Shirley, who uh, he wrote a, a Batman tie-in novel where Batman fought um, a white supremacist like supervillain. And if you want to talk about the comments that he got from like all these like right-wing racist like Batman fans, like um, it, it's funny because, you know, he's written progressive science fiction since the 70s. And like, it's funny because he still will say like, that is the most intense comments I got on anything was what he wrote 
that random Batman novel. <laughs> wow. And you'd think like Batman fighting a white supremacist. Well, that's kind of a cool idea. But then, you know, uh, these, you know, people all came out of the woodwork and, you know, he got lots of bomb reviews, which I, sounds like you're dealing with that with this book, right? I'm sure to a much lesser extent, but it was just eye-opening to me. But, you know, I, I used to say- That is interesting though. And I, I am fine with drilling down on that a little bit because I think that's something that is a part of being a modern author today, right? Is that, you know, especially when you're writing a book that very smartly is commenting on the times the people who who want the fascist dictatorship out of the civil war are 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 gonna see like oh wait here's this really smart writer who knows what she's talking about who comes from this field who's who's able to you know write about history and tie it all in and that's going to make them mad, you know? Yeah. So. I, I mean, to a certain degree, I think I've flown under the radar partly because, you know, I have a foreign name and so they're not going to want to read the book anyway. Right. I think that they just stay away. Um, but, you know, so lately in the analytic world, I've, I've been known for working on social media um, research analytics and a lot of that is disinformation work. And I know that they can be very granular, right? <laughs> like any right. keyboard that crosses their path, you know, they'll divert and just bombard that person for a little while. So I kind of always wondered in the back of my mind if I would hit some list somewhere. Oh, and while we're just randomly complaining about, you know, woke things we don't like, let's, you know, throw a few one-star reviews down on that book. That's probably all all that happened there but yeah being a writer these days is a is an interesting experience oh for sure and and you know it's unfortunate that we kind of have to deal with all these things um you know that is unfortunately look i really appreciate that you waded into these waters with this book and you know some of it it's funny because when i wrote my review normally i like try to dig into these things but i think that there's a degree that it's a fun part for people to explore those feelings um i recently read um the book about the woman who was the um who was the nazi resistor from milwaukee who uh like she lived in nazi germany and she was she like ran a resistance cell and hitler executed her at some point during the war and you know it's funny because i wanted to read this because i thought i might get ideas for my book and for whatever and, and i was like oh uh, an, an american resistance fighter in nazi germany that's interesting and then when you end up reading the book you see the parallels to our modern world and then you're like oh wow this is really frightening and then you you know you see for example like there's a whole section of it where everyone's discounting her fear of Hitler because they're like, oh, he's a buffoon. Nobody takes him seriously. Yeah. You know? uh. and, and you're you're reading this and you're like, oh my God, right? And I can see that when you're writing the fervor, you're and all these Asian hate things are happening, like in the world as you're writing this, I think one of the most you know, I said in my review, the thing that makes your skin crawl when you're reading The Fervor is not anything to do with the supernatural elements. 
whatsoever. Those aren't actually the really scary parts. The really scary parts are the venom and hatred towards the Japanese characters in it. Yeah. That's the skin crawling part of the book. And specifically the part where um, you know, the character says, and I had to call you the I thought you were one of us, but you're helping this Jap lover, you're a race trader. And um, you know, just the way people like talk that about Japanese people like is such a mirror to what we were seeing in response to the China virus thing. And I know, I know you're trying very hard. I'll go there. I don't give, I don't give a shit. I'll I'll go there. And I, and I, I respect that, that, you know, you're trying to thread that line and, and let the history do it. But um, what I, I just want to say, I think the book does that great. You know, that is the, the skin crawly part. And I'm well, sure for you, that was the hardest parts to write, right? I'm assuming. It, I'll tell you a couple interesting things. One is the whole white supremacist gang actually kind of came in in a later draft. Mm. Partly because when you write a book and you're putting in this like thematic social issue, for me at least, I feel like you have to you have to walk a line. Otherwise, people say, "Oh, you're being didactic," and you know, I don't read books to be taught a lesson, and you know, all that kind of stuff. You and also in my world, I, do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'd like to think, but some people just just want yeah. it to be light, right? Or not apparent. The hand should not be apparent. Um, but in my field, we also have to be very careful about bias. And so I feel like that creeps into my work, whether I like it or not, because it's just part of my training to really make sure that I'm not, that I'm uh, to protect against bias. But the, so that's probably what made me stay a little bit away from the white nationalist angle until, until January 6th, 2021. And when I watched the attack on the Capitol as a former federal employee who was taking the oath of office many times, <laughs> You know, that struck me to my core. That was treason against the United States, right? And to see these a fair amount of folks who were, you know, prior law enforcement or prior military, the Oath Keepers and, you know, those idiots. Um, for one thing, I'll say as a genocide analyst, uh, militias are the big fear, right? Those are the ones who are the henchmen who help um you know, uh, despots come to power. It, you just see it over and over and over again. You don't have that kind of a situation in a country without a militia. So we know what a danger those really are. And so when yeah. I saw those people activated in the Capitol, I said, that's it. I've got to put that in there. And the thing is, is in, in real history, they were a big uh, part of what led to the systemic racism against Chinese and then Japanese on the West Coast. It happened for decades, ever since the Chinese railroads. And I used actual flyers and speeches given by some of these groups as the models for the handbills and that sort of thing that are in the book. Well, and it's ironic too. And by the way, I could, like, it's very hard now because I could talk to you all day about your point of view on January 6th, considering the research that you did in the 90s. And I will resist that. But um, but it is ironic, isn't it, that all this fear that Americans had of the Japanese, like trying to tear down the country, and it was a bunch of rednecks and red hats um, who, you know, liked 
a reality TV star as their president who who were the ones who actually did, who were the yeah. threat, who were the danger. So who, we'll just add just one thing because it really drives that point home. You know, if you, at the time, if you ask people and, and today, if you ask people, why do they believe that the executive order was signed? They'll say it's because of the perceived threat by Japanese, right? For of spying on the country or committing sabotage. Two facts. One is uh, the office, the War Department and the Office of the President, knowing that the United States was being pulled into war, conducted several studies as to what the actual threat was from the Japanese population. Three studies, all of them said there was no threat, right? So they knew that there was no threat from the Japanese folks on the West Coast. I used to work for RAND. That is exactly the kind of study that we would do for the government. I'm here to tell you that those studies happened, right? Yeah. That's the first thing. They knew in advance, the highest office in the land knew in advance there was no threat. And yet he still signed the executive order that sent 120,000 people to camps for no damn good reason. We also know afterwards, study after study found there was not even one case, not one case of a person of Japanese heritage spying on or sabotaging anything on the West Coast of the United States. So we know there was absolutely no basis in fact. So this is exactly the approach we take when we look at a foreign country and we see the government saying, we're putting these people in concentration camps because of X, Y, or Z, or these political things are happening in a country. You don't take them at their face value. You actually look for the underlying facts that show what's actually going on. And that's what we report to the president. Anyway, so looking at it through that perspective, we could see that there was no basis for this. What was happening? Well, two things. Certain politicians were grandstanding for their constituents, building on the emotionalism of Pearl Harbor by saying there's a threat. And they were building on this these decades of racism. You can see the illustrations, newspaper cartoons, you know, look at um, op-ed pieces and all that about the threat from the Chinese and Americans. Now look today, who the fuck are your doctors, your lawyers, your senators, right? We're the model minority. You know there was no threat from us, right? And yet this is how uh, certain parts of this country respond to any minorities. It's primarily the threat of economic competition that drives this racism. And it's all dolled up in other things. Oh, I feel threatened. I'm not safe. Well, you know, that's the truth. Sorry, this is why. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I love it. And <laughs> I, I'm all for it. And here's the thing, too, is now we see that there were actual reports saying these militias on January 6th were a threat and nobody did anything. Um, it, uh, speaking as someone in the intelligence community, now I was in, uh, I had been working when Oklahoma City bombing happened. So I take that, I mean, I was very young uh, in my, just starting out in service. And so I remember that, you know, that is like visceral to me, right? We understand what the threat is from nationalists, but it is very hard. I'm here to tell you as 35 year veteran of the federal government, it is very hard to get the United States to look at the white uh, nationalist threat. Yeah, it's politically not palatable. Yeah, I got that. And and look, and you know, here's the thing too, is that, um, you know, the, the Japanese internment situation, obviously there's modern parallels with, um, with the way uh, Mexican immigrants are talked about and, and those things. And I think um, 
what I like, you know, look, look, this is a tradition. You know, some people might say that they don't want their horror to teach them anything. They don't want that. But this is the tradition we we started with the Twilight Zone, right? You know, so True. so um, if you know, there's plenty of slasher horror and things like that, and there's plenty of all that. But you know, as far as I'm concerned, give me the horror that's going to teach me things. That's going to like. I love the idea that I can sit down and read a horror novel and get the experience of a person who was in the intelligence community and did those things and, you know, read those reports and can, you know, tie it into a novel. You know, I think that's great. That's one of the things that makes this, this book, you know, you know, really cool. And I, I don't, I haven't given a spoiler warning at this point because I, you know, this is one book that, I'm not quite sure you can spoil this one, but uh, partially because the history is there. Um, but as far as the characters go and the things in, in the nitty gritty of telling the storyline, and and I knew I was, we were going to get into the issues of this book for a long time, but my podcast is always going to be like getting under the hood for writers. And so with the, creation of the characters that you had very specifically you had four point of view characters right and each of them do specific things for driving the narrative um and by giving us specific points of view that are important um first of all like um archie mitchell right the pastor yeah now He's an important character because he's going to be our window into the well-intentioned American who's trying to do the right thing because he's going to see parts of, he's going to see people opening wounds that the Japanese characters aren't going to see directly. Some of these people aren't going to say the things like you're a race traitor, somebody else, but they'll say it to a white guy they think is going to, is going to be on their side, right? So tell me about the creation of Archie Miller and we'll go through all the POV characters one at a time a little bit. Sure. Well, Archie uh, was a great character to write. Now he's a real person. He was the man who, you know, as I said, the book opens with an explosion of one of these Japanese fire balloons on Gerhard mountain. It's a, it really happened. It's the only um, deaths of U S citizens attributed to the war on the U S mainland, his wife died and five school children they had with them that died that day. So, um, you know, I, I brought Archie in, but then like with all my books, these aren't meant to be like really biographical sketches of real people in a way, you know, I'm creating a character and I'm just sort of hanging his name on it. And I felt it was really important to have a character, just as you said, that's there to show the viewpoint in to the average white American, right? Um, but also because he's religious, he's a pastor. And what's the role of the church in this? Um, you know, especially when we look at it today and we know that evangelicals are so heavily embedded in a lot of what's going on in America today. But at the time, also, because as a genocide scholar, one of the, the not that I'm a scholar, but I used to deal with a lot of them. One of the questions when you work on genocides, uh, one of the big questions is always on complicity. You know, why did people, the average person support the Nazis, for instance? 
why does the average person who knows their brother-in-law is an oath keeper and was going to march on the Capitol and was bringing mace with them not report him to the police, right? Why, why do that? When you see something is wrong and you know something is wrong, why do you step back and refuse to do anything? And so I sharpened it by making Archie had been friends with uh, Japanese Americans, and he knew that there was nothing to fear from them. And yet he didn't stand up for them and he let them be taken away to the camps and he felt guilty about it. But that was the extent of it. And I just wanted to see what it would be like to push a character as far as you possibly could in that situation. He loses his wife. If anyone would have, you know, a platform to be bitter about the Japanese, it would be him. And, and we see the nationalist group sort of take advantage of that. Well, and as a real life person, was he somebody that there was a lot of information about? Because I, I, I've, I've read about the Japanese fire balloons before and that situation but i don't ever remember hearing his name so i didn't know whether you invented him or not or it was a real person when, when i was reading it and not so i'm wondering yeah there is information about yeah a little bit he was a very interesting character he was uh you know he went to missionary school and after the um, what happened in in oregon he ended up uh, marrying the sister of the two the patsky kids who died in the explosion and he went to Vietnam as a missionary and he ended up being captured by the Viet Cong and he and another missionary were taken hostage. The wife was left and he was never heard from again. He had a really fascinating, fascinating life. So I, you know, I didn't <laughs> want to dishonor him in any way, but, it, you know, the character bears his name, but not necessarily is meant to be a representation of him. Got it. OK, well, yeah, interesting. Yeah, he has an interesting life. Uh, so, uh, Mieko, Miyoko is Mako. Mako. Okay. Yep. Yeah. We already talked about her a little bit because she's the one that's kind of inspired by your mother, but, um, right. Uh, am I remembering that correctly? And, yep. 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 And, and so her, her, her viewpoint is obvious. She, she's the one that's in the camp. And you said that She's kind of started off being inspired by your mother, but became this very different person because her situation is different. But through her her eyes is where we see the the disease spreading, where we, we see the camps, we see um, like being the target of, of this hatred. And she's an interesting character because her, and if I'm remembering this wrong, correct me, um, her husband enlisted and is gone so now she's in a situation where and i guess this is unlike your this is where it gets different from your mother where she had to kind of on her own take care of her daughter through this horrible situation so really really great character and i think having that point of view where you were able to start with somebody else and, and build off that is is a really interesting way to do to do character so one of the things I'm doing as a Philip K. Dick scholar is I've been researching his outline for Ubik lately. And he, every time he wrote a character's name down, he would combine three people in his real life to base their personality on. Really? Yeah. And it's interesting because um, there's another guy who's the only, one of the few Philip K. Dick nerds as much as me. And we spent like two hours trying to figure out ever, who everybody was in his real life from, from this list over Facebook Messenger. And it, and it was interesting to see, like, you know, aspects of how you build these characters based on real people. So 
What I'm curious about is, you know, how much was your mom like kind of on your shoulder when you were writing this character or, you know, where did you have to go? Like, okay, my mom would never do this. I've got to start thinking of her as a separate person kind of thing. I just, from a writer's perspective, I I find this fascinating how. Well, you know, what's really that thing about Philip K. Dick, that's really fascinating too. I never thought about like, like having a method, right? Combine three people per character. That's fascinating. You know, I think I'm very subconscious. It wasn't until you were speaking that it dawned on me. You know what? Mako is me. Mako is me. (laughs) It's true. Um, she starts off thinking the best of everybody, right? Like (laughs) she's just in this role, you know, no one's really to blame. She's just going to do what's asked of her. She's a little mad at her husband for running off and joining the war effort and leaving her, you know, who she's not a native American, but she can understand it because everyone was, all the guys were enlisting at the time and she's just going to do her part and she gets increasingly madder and madder as she's, as you know, kind of the veils are taken off from in front of her eyes and she sees how much they're being victimized and treated unfairly. And then beyond that, you know, treated like guinea pigs, basically. And that was kind of me. I mean, you know, I've been uh, a minority my whole life. And as I have said in some of these interviews, you know, we don't walk around thinking that we're being... Um, you know, picked on or victimized all the time. And so you find yourself in a situation where it's it's finally obvious, right? What's going on? And then you'd get mad about it. Like, oh my God, why are they doing this to me, right? Mm. I guess it's like being a frog in the heat, just in a boiling pot of water and the heat just gets turned up. So by the end of it, you're just mad enough to punch somebody in the head. And that's what happened in the book. I got to suddenly realize all this anger that I had been carrying around with me for years through Mako. And she gets to be really violent. At one point, an editor said, this nice Japanese woman is bashing a lot of heads in here. Is this realistic? And I'm like, she should have bashed more. Right, right. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's funny. Uh, and her daughter uh, has one of the previous moments of the book, which I don't want to give away. Um, but, um, you know, her importance to the story, I think partially because, you know, her mother is is very much the POV character in a lot of ways. And obviously, you you know, writers don't always have to have like their point of view character or the one that, that is theirs but it's clear that she was. So um, I think her, uh, you know, the, the connection to her daughter is obviously very important. I don't want to give away what happens with her, but um, that was really powerful, oh, powerful nice. stuff. So, um, and then, you know, a really cool character that could have been her whole, could have been her, her, her whole own novel. Um, I'm planting seeds there that I'd like to see you do is Fran who, um, you know, I think, and I, you know, I just finished reading um, uh, a collection of C.L. Moore stories. And if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with C.L. Moore, but no, she was a, um, she was born in Indianapolis in 1911. And she published her first horror short story in Weird Tales, or first science fiction story in 1933 in Weird Tales. Wow. And it's a vampire a Venetian vampire on Mars story with a character named Northwest Smith, who's basically Han Solo. 
Um, and she's from my home state and she was living, she was going to college in my hometown when she wrote this in 1932. So I'm very, but so here's the thing with CL Moore is that because I've become really fascinated in these early pulp women writers who, you know, she went by CL Moore not to hide her gender, but to hide the fact that she had a second job because it was the great depression and you, you know, were dinged if you had a second job. Right. Um, like for, for, I think it had something to do with hours, but it's great depression thing. But there were a lot of people think that women were not writing science fiction and horror and genre work at the time. There was a lot of women getting published in that era. CL Moore is the example. I use Lee Brackett, of course, who went on to write Empire Strikes Back right before she died. And, you know, you, they had all these women that were, that were writing pulps and what, so I related to Fran a lot because her role, I'm sorry, I will bring it back. Uh, um, as a, as a guy who, like my big passion is the history of the genre. That's one of the reasons why I'm interested in CL Moore, Philip Dick, all these things. Like I'm very passionate about the history of the genre. And so Fran spoke to me because I saw the, the pulp writers in her working in these offices where she wasn't respected, but she was doing the hard work and she was doing the things. Um, C.L. Moore, who we were just talking about, she ended up marrying Henry Kuttner, who is a very famous science fiction writer too. And they wrote stories together every once in a while. And sometimes you'll see books where it'll be like, Henry Kuttner with C.L. Moore. And like, it, it, and it was bullshit. He, they, he never wanted that to happen, right? Um, but it was, that, that's an example that I see of, of things like this. So Fran working in the, this, nebraska newspaper situation and like trying to prove herself great character i really related to fran tell me about writing fran that was that was a lot of words i'm sorry that's okay so um you know i had mentioned before that i have a partner with these books and it's really these two women um authors and you i'll work with one or the other mostly i've been working with lexa lexa hillier um and fran was more lexa's vision. And really, she dominated the original idea for the book was a lot of it was Fran's, um, from Fran's point of view, which was important, because if you have a character who's in the camps, they can't know what's going on in the outside world. And a story that's primarily told from inside the camp might end up being a little too claustrophobic, not enough action, that sort of thing. So we wanted Fran uh, because we needed somebody who was mobile, <laughs> who could go out and find these other parts to the puzzle. But, um, you know, Lexa loved her so much that she ended up having like a really rich backstory. And and so that made it a lot easier to write. All, uh, her early newspaper experiences are actually, I use them from when I was a teenager and I worked in newsrooms, which was a long time ago, so long ago that I knew about the teletype machines from the wire services, but my younger partners did not know about <laughs> for instance right. so I drew on yeah my own actual experiences you know the big hard copy books of the old issues that we would pull down and go through to find an old story that we had to reference or you know look for ideas for new stories which we have in the in the novel um so yeah she was I guess a little bit more of a collaboration but I see where you're going with this what happens to Fran 
Um, well, she and could be a pulp writer. Going around doing news stories, there's lots of historical events she could have been at. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm all I'm all here for, uh, you know, your for for Fran, because I think she could be out there uh, finding out lots of lots of historical details. So that's a great idea. Well, and so here's the thing, though, her being mobile, like does give her a really important role. And it's interesting that you're what now when you say partners like they're, are they writing their own books and you guys are kind of collaborating right. or yeah or how does that work? basically what happens is um you know we'll come up with a general idea or a period in time i'll go and i'll do quick research scrub and from that it'll help give us ideas for the actual plot and you know plot twists characters which actual characters do we want to pull into the story it's almost and like then, a writer's room kind of thing almost it is it's very collaborative it's that's, more like uh, that's really cool a uh, thing to have too that's one of the reasons I like collaborating on books, which a lot of people hate. Yeah, um, I can you know. see. I mean, it's got its pluses and minuses. Uh, it really did help make it a little bit easier for me to get into television. And we can talk about that in a minute. Not that I'm a writer, but um, and then um, we'll collaborate on the plot. And then I'll go and I'll write it. And a lot of times things will have to change once we get into the writing because something's not working. There's, for instance, with Fran, it ended up being too much legwork, too much running all over the country for her to chase aspects of the story just didn't make sense, given that it was the war and gas and tires and everything was being rationed. You wouldn't be driving, you know, willy nilly. So things like that will end up changing the story, change the balance of um, who's going to speak you know how how many how many pages are they going to get that sort of thing and then um once we get it to a place that we kind of like it goes over to our editor at the publishing house and from then on you know she controls it and she can say what she wants changed and generally from there i'm working directly with the editor mm. well and i i think um the thing about it is is that really gives you somebody to bounce ideas off of and that's just this really cool because sometimes when you're living in a novel like there's just nobody who understands what what's going on in your head to the point where you can there's no one you can talk to about it because no one understands like right. how deep you are in this in this project you want that other person so yeah. when i'm doing the amazon stories you know, I wrote them alone. I didn't have a partner. And so when I finally got to work with the editor as an Amazon, it was like, thank God, somebody I can bounce the story off of. She can tell me if I'm like, just jumped off a cliff or something. Right. Well, I remember I, I have a cli-fi novel, Ring of Fire. And when I was writing it, um, I, you know, even though I think climate change is the thing everybody's dealing with, but, but the aspects of what I've got going on specifically in the story and, like that one was multi-character, all kinds of, you know, and I just remember like times of like every once in a while trying to like throw ideas at, at, at my wife who's very intelligent, very, very, you know, smart with stories. But then at times she was just like, I know too much. <laughs> right. I don't, because you're, you're so in it, you, you know, like you, there's so much, well, this is important because this thing happened to this person and and, and that, you know, and, yeah. and it must be really nice uh, to, to have that. So, um, all right. So before I do want to 
um, get a tease on the Amazon thing out for people. Um, but with the fervor, um, I'm going to, I've already tried to sell this as, as, um, you know, horror fiction. I think the horror, the, the way to sell it is that it's horror, fi- historical horror fiction that will teach you about another era, but also teach you about today. That's the best, um, you know, thing about writing about history is, is, is what, what it can, what it can reflect on today. Of course, we say the same thing about science fiction. The best science fiction isn't about the future. It's about today. And I think it's true with, with the historical horror. And so is there anything else I missed on the fervor that you, you really want to hammer home to, to my listeners? No, I think I think he did a wonderful job. I mean, really, it's because it's a it's um, a bit of a sprawling book in a way. There's a, like you know, as you alluded to, there's a lot of ground to cover between you know the themes and also the history. Um, there's the fire balloons, which we didn't talk about, which you knew about them. But honestly, I am. So, I mean, I remember, but I'm pretty old. I, I'm also I was, I was a history major and I like history. So, you know, that that explains a lot. I mean, I wasn't that I was still pretty young. World War Two wasn't that far away. I hadn't happened that long ago. And I remember hearing about the fire balloons. But when I talk to people today, almost nobody has heard about the fire balloons. But they were a real thing. They were about 30 feet in diameter, made of rice paper. And they just floated them up on the uh, jet stream in the hope that now, they what would... I don't remember was, did, did they use submarines to launch them? Or... No, they didn't. That was a... Um, that was a hypothesis they had a hard time because and this is a little spoilery because the u.s didn't know about the jet stream hard to believe but at world war ii they, the rest of they the world still didn't was, know about it yeah, yeah they still didn't know about most of the world didn't it, it had been discovered by a japanese uh, researcher but was uh, you know he tried to get the word out but you know it just didn't get out and uh if it weren't for the jet stream so People couldn't believe that the balloons made it all the way over from Japan. And they thought that it must have been launched off of a submarine. But after the war, it came out. That wasn't the case. They launched them all the way from Japan. Thousands of them. Thousands. There were 245 sightings or you know times where it it, they the balloons came down or remains were found uh, in roughly a several year period from the end of the war till after the war, uh, far up as uh, as Alaska. Some, of course, were in Pacific, some were found in Hawaii, but the majority of them were in the Pacific Northwest. Wow, that is really interesting. They're just kind of randomly throwing them out there like, well, maybe they'll hit something. As a uh, Japanese person, it made me a little sad yeah. <laughs> that this is how they were fighting a war by sending paper balloons across the ocean. That's pretty desperate, but um, you, it's also ingenious in a way. Well, yeah, I mean, they were also sending kamikaze pilots, so they they had tougher measures as well. So you he know, did. He did. Um, yeah, the the uh, the history of it is is bananas and um yeah and i knew about it partially because i used to live in portland and it's one of those like histories of oregon things so yes um yeah and and i'm representing right now for 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 oregon so um but yeah i uh i i think i learned about it when i was living there but i could have learned about it earlier 
But I do know for a fact that once on local TV in Portland, they did a story about about the blind thing. So I have seen it there. Um, Now, so so what are you work? So next up is the the Red London is the next book, right? Yes. Yes. And that comes out in the in March, March March of 2023. Yes. Please keep your eyeballs open for it. It's very you know, like every other espionage writer in the world, we were all working on something when Russia attacked Ukraine in February. And um, it changed all of our books. I actually had to like rewrite it several times to reflect things that were happening. Oh my God, that was a pain. Well, so, because you wanted it to be modern. I I don't, I mean, I I don't remember Red Widow was locked into a specific time or not. So it wasn't, it wasn't, I I mean, it it is contemporary, but it wasn't like tied to a particular event. But once you start hooking it on things like that, publishers, I think get kind of nervous if you end up falling out of step with what is like the received wisdom, you know, common knowledge of a particular thing. So at that point, your job is to jump to another track Right. So you're not constantly being held hostage to the news and uh, it took me a couple tries to just do that make up a fake alternate history and call it that <laughs> like i have a, a first contact novel that i've written and i just i was like i'm just gonna make up a president there's no freaking way i'll you know and i will just it, it takes place in its own world right, um, right. and uh, uh i don't know if I don't know if I'll ever sell that one or if it'll ever work, but I was just like, I'm not doing this world. (laughs) Right. So Red Red London, you had to kind of go back because of the, yeah, I mean. Yes, but it ends up making the book kind of not only prescient, but also somehow I just lucked into a device and I won't give it away that also doesn't make it uh, become old news either. So mm. that's why the publishers and everybody are kind of excited about it because it it's it's very interesting. I was just very lucky to like think of this device. Basically, well, then they better hop on it quick as a movie. I think. Let's hope. Let's yeah, hope. I, I um, think so. So it's very timely. It's about the Russian oligarchs, and when I first proposed the book, because you know you do these a couple of years before a book comes out, everyone was like, "Oh, that's so you know." 2010s nobody cares about the oligarchs boom, boom, boom. and then ukraine happened it became a huge issue for the uk and so it's huge. still huge yeah. yeah yeah very <laughs> timely very timely issue anyway so yeah that's the next well, yeah the oligarchs issue definitely changed <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah we oh. recently had here in san diego they had um what they pulled into the harbor one of the boats they seized from the oligarchs and everyone was going downtown to see this freaking thing because it looked, it was insane. Like it had all kinds of like, um, like dune buggies and four wheelers and yeah. like, and they were on like a thing where they could like roll it out and lay them down. And like, it was the, it was the most insane thing. And it was, it was weird for a couple of days when they pulled it into the Harbor, like everyone wanted to go see this thing. <laughs> Because they were like, it, it was fascinating. And yeah, it's disgusting, conspicuous consumption, like to this ridiculous nth degree when you read about what these people have. And and then when you realize how they got it, and I'm not, you know, the Russian oligarchs are alone in this. 
um, you know, how they sort of have this dark network uh, that allows them to amass such wealth. But anyway, so that's the next book. But the next story I have coming out is this Amazon original story. I'm excited about it because I think you are going to find it interesting. It's coming oh, out September yeah. 29th. Is it a novella it's, or? It's probably a little short for a novella. It's about 80 pages, I guess. It's That's called, a novella. <laughs> the Werewolf, W-E-H-R-W-O-L-F, The Werewolf. Uh -huh. And it's about German resistance at the end of World War II. And it, the whole issue about complicity, it's, it, it's about this villager who uh, was given a dispensation to take care of his mother, who was a widower from World War I. So he didn't have to fight in the war. And he says, you know, of course, he, he didn't like the Nazis and he didn't support the Nazi party. But as the allies are advancing into Germany, there's a lot of pressure in these little towns to form their own resistance against the allies and he's being pulled into this group who want to put their own special little village twist on what it means to be a resistance fighter. And that's all I'll say there. Well, Alma, we're already on the same page. I did a Nazi werewolf novel in 2014 called Boot Boys of the Wolf Reich. That's oh. um, about a, 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 neo, a Nazi um, werewolf who escapes Argentina and then ends up in Chicago and recruits a bunch of Nazi skinheads um, to, oh my God. to start another. Yeah, um, it's anti-racist skinheads and racist skinheads in Chicago in the late 80s. Wow. Queen of Age novel. And um, which, by the way, takes place in the same universe as my novel coming out next year. Um, but I, I will tell you about that offline. But um, but that sounds awesome. I, you know, I, first of all, World War II werewolf stories are, are an actual thing that are more, you know, because we also have Robert McCammon's Wolf Hour, which is yeah. about a, 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 an allied spy werewolf. There's lots of homages to World, Wolf Hour and my boot boys of the Wolf Reich. Um, Wolf Hour is great too. And I love that you've got a story coming into that tradition. That is a very rich and awesome part of, of history of the world to write about. Well, um, I'll, I'll be curious to see what you think. It's 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 like semi-fairy tale. The tone so is that is gonna be available on the Amazon website as an ebook or is it gonna be a print book? It, no like? print. It'll just be it's through Amazon Original Stories line. Ooh. So it's available on the Kindle. And they'll also have an audio version, but no print. Mm. Oh, that's cool. Well, um, hey, it's it's there. And um, well, and you don't write a lot of short fiction, right? So, so this is you must. Did you have fun doing that? Because I, I did. I started by looking, trying to do a proposal for a book. Actually, that was going to look at. Um, I was really fascinated with uh, the Nazi fascination for magical thinking. And yeah, really that was to... that was where I was going with boot boys too. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, especially when you look at the parallels between what's happening with a certain political party in this country, mm -hmm. and you know the parallels are just astounding. And so I thought this would make a great kind of satirical book. What do you know? People aren't that interested in publishing it. So um, I had just done all this research, and then this story idea came to me because, like I said, when you work genocides, the the complicity issue. And then of course, you know, January 6th, I really wanted to write something about the danger of militias. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, they, you know, that's the time to do it. So, well, yeah. um, and when does that come out? Uh, September 29th. September 29th. I will keep my eye out for that. Um, and I'll send it to you. Oh, that's <laughs> I'd awesome. love to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. Um, yeah, because also I could do an early review for it too. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll talk offline about that. But um, but the <laughs> the funny thing is is that um, I what I think uh, is going on with a fervor that will really appeal to people is is that writing about now it is it is about now and that and that is is what makes it really great. So. You made it this far, people. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, Alma is always awesome to talk to you. Oh, um, you. I love that you combine history and horror. Um, and like I said, I, I could talk all day about uh, your personal view of, of what goes on with, you know, my wife says to me all the time that she's just like tired of watching the coverage of, of uh, January 6th. And I get that. But uh, knowing every nitty gritty, I think is, is, is really fascinating to watch like, um, how, how, uh, close everything came. And, you know, I never thought there'd be a day where I, I thought somebody from the Cheney family was such a hero for, <laughs> for, uh, standing up for things and, and, you know, being that as liberal and radical as I am, I, I just never saw that coming. And, right. um, but the fact that, and especially frightening to hear from somebody who watched all these genocides develop, um, because I don't know how we get out of this predicament. I'm not sure either. I yeah. know how other countries have dealt with it, and it you the first step is admitting it, right? So yeah, if we can't can't get that can't get one of the political main political parties closer to that line, it's gonna it's it's gonna be drawn out. Yeah, and then that is. And that's the thing is that I recently was saying to a coworker, I was, I, I said that whole, I had this whole conversation because she and I, the, the day after Trump got elected, I said, this is not going to end well and there's no silver lining. And so she constantly reminds me that I said that, that like that night. And then I said, well, I said, well, here's the new thing, you know, all these years, six years later, I'm going to tell you that I don't think there's any good way to get out of this. There's, there's no, there's no happy way. And on that fun note, <laughs> read this entertaining horror novel about um, Japanese internment camps because uh, it, it will make you feel great about the world. But you know what? Hey, that's what I, you know, what do you read horror for? I, that's what I read horror for. And I do think it's escape anyways. So Alma, thank, thank you, you for so joining much. me again on Postcards. Um, you're always welcome. Um, I'm definitely going to be reading Red London when it comes out. Um, I uh, super enjoy your point of view. Okay. And um, I'll stick around to uh, talk to you about some offline things. But uh, I really appreciate the time you gave us here today. Thank you. Fun as always. It's always great talking to you. Thank you. All right, folks. Uh, see you next time.